not a girl thing, it's a skills thing. Welcome to a new podcast of Women in Sport, where we bring you curated stories and learn together as we delve into the main debates in the field. Here with you are your hosts, Sophie Timmerman and Tess Mosteris. Today we talk about biathlon. Biathlon is a winter sport that combines cross-country skiing and rifle shooting. It's supposed to have its roots and survival skills practiced in Scandinavia, but today it's a sport which is very, very popular across Europe. And our guest today is Amanda Lightfoot, Britain's very best female biathlete. So where are we reaching at the moment? I think you said you're in Slovakia. Yeah, I'm in Slovakia in a place called Brezno, possibly. We traveled here yesterday. So what are the snow conditions like? Um, there's not so much snow here at the moment. But um, they've got enough of the track and I went on the track this morning and it's quite fast, a little bit wet. So it will get slushy during the race tomorrow, um, which will slow everything down. But at the moment, it was very fast this morning and yeah, I was quite excited going on the track. I felt good. We had like a 10 hour journey yesterday, though, from um, Slovenia because we're at the World Championships. So we traveled over from World Championships to here the next race in Slovakia. And yeah, I think it took us about 10 hours, but... It was quite fun, some singing along the way. So how, how big is your team right now? So how many of you are traveling together? We're not so big at the moment here. We've only got one male and one female. So it's my, myself and a guy called Vinnie Fountain, who's on the male team. Um, so we're both racing the sprint tomorrow. And then there's a pursuit, which is the top 60 in the world, get to race that. And we both should make that as well, for sure. We'll race that. And then we leave again on Monday for another 12-hour journey back. Back to Slovenia? And no, even further, uh, back to Italy. A lot of traveling. It's it's really exciting. Do you like the traveling or do you think, is that part of the biathlon um, lifestyle? Yeah, I think you just get used to it. It's part of the lifestyle. I mean, I loved it when I was younger, when I first started. It was brilliant going to a different hotel every week and competing at a different venue. Um, and then, you know, like 12 years on, it's it's repetitive in a sense. I mean, I still do enjoy it. But then it's also nice to, you know, go back and have your one place where you're like, oh, actually, I'm excited to go back to my bed. But I carry my pillow around everywhere as well which is a bit crazy, but it gets vacuum-packed every time I leave. Got a little suction pump, a vacuum packet, and that goes in my suitcase, and it travels everywhere with me. That's not odd at all. I do the same thing. Uh, I've been doing it for two years. It's brilliant, isn't it? You sleep so much better with a vacuum-packed pillow, and it's so easy with a vacuum pack. Like, I love that idea. I only actually thought about that last year. Before that, it was, like, under my arm. It makes a difference, completely. How would you describe this sport to someone that has either never heard of it or, you know, someone like me who has maybe watched it a couple of times but doesn't really understand it very well? I would say, oh God, it's thrilling, exciting. And if you know somebody who does it, it makes it a million times better to watch. 100%. Like that, that's it in a nutshell. I think once you get onto it and you realize the... Uh, the, if you, I think it's understanding behind Bathlon exactly what we do and once you understand the concept of it and like the targets being 50 meters away and the sites doesn't you know there's no special sites and you've got to do that with a heart rate of 180 beats per minute and you get like 25 seconds to hit five targets at 50 meters away the size of like an orange in prone position and a grapefruit in standing position you know and every miss there's a penalty so the race is always changing and there's always a new winner every week and it's never the same person always winning, which you get in a lot of other sports. There's, there's, there's a chance for everyone. And that's, I think, what makes it so exciting to watch. 
I think I totally agree. Like as a spectator, I mean, every race is just as of like he's starting from nothing again because you know if you miss one one shot, you can just like change the entire race. So I mean, that for me is always like my heart beats so fast just watching the sport. So I can only imagine what it's like standing there and shooting yourself and just racing. No, it's crazy. Like one shot's like one or two seconds, and it completely changes the race. You can go from winning a race to fifteenth place if you miss one shot. You know, it's like you drop 10 places instantly just with that little squeeze of the trigger and it's completely changed, different race. But it can also be completely different to be in a plus race as well. You know, you hit the targets. It's like, oh my God. I mean, sometimes the other day I was at the day, I was at the range and I hit all five and I like looked back and looked back again, checked and I was like, oh my God, I did. Let's go. Let's go. And you get excited as well because, I mean, you want to do it and you do it in training, you practice and practice. But when it goes down in a race, it's, it's different. And I think watching on, Watching Bathon, you think, God, they, you know, they. Sh I mean, we do. We hit thousands of targets all summer. We, you know, throw down thousands of rounds down the range, and you think, God, I mean, they do it so many times. Why can't they hit it in a race? But there's something about a race that there's just like a little minute detail where you think about something, or you're thinking about winning, or you're like, you're thinking about the wind, or you're thinking about someone else, or maybe you listen to the audience, or you listen to the spectator, and that's it. Complete. Then you miss a target, and you're like, God damn it, why did I do that? And then you're thinking about it when the penalty loop. <laughs> yeah, take us back to how you fell in love with the sport. Oh God, it's so I joined the army at sixteen. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. My brother was in the army, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to do that too. And he was like, No, you can't. And I was like, Yes, I can. Watch me. So I went down and signed up the next day. Begged my parents to sign the papers because you need them to sign as well if you're under eighteen. My dad was totally adamant I wasn't going to join. My mom was like, You know, let it go. It might be good for her. So it took me two weeks to get my dad to sign the papers. So after that, I was sent down, uh, posted out to Germany, and I'd done like two and a half years in Germany, went and did a tour of Iraq for six months. And then when I came back from Iraq, they were looking for fit females in the regiment to join the army Nordic ski team. And I was like, ooh, skiing. Never been on snow, never skied in my life. That sounds cool. So I was like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And they were like, right, okay, we go away in November and, you know, we'll go skiing. So I was like, yes, so I was telling everyone, yeah, I'm going downhill skiing, it's going to be awesome. I've seen it on TV a few times. You know, fast forward to November, I find myself on the slopes in Norway and they start pulling out these skis and being like, yeah, you know, you ski uphill, chuck that rifle on your back. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> so that's kind of how it began. <laughs> and then I obviously quickly learned that I wasn't going downhilling. I was skiing uphills with a rifle attached to my back and I had to also hit targets while trying to breathe. So yeah, that's how it began. <laughs> And here we are, 12 years later, I guess, right? <laughs> Crazy, 12 years later, two Olympic Games, and I'm still still going. <laughs> but I just, you just, you get a passion for it, I think. And as a novice as well, I mean, there's so many face plants and so many snow plows. And, um, but I, I quickly, I quickly learned to love it. And I just, it became a challenge. And I think I love a challenge. I think that's part of my personality. And every day, like, I wanted to get better and, you know, try and improve and, you know, I'll, maybe a thousand face pants later and some twisted ankles and covered in snow. Um, yeah, I, I started to be able to ski, let's say, and I went to the British Championships. I raced the British Championships with these poles that I literally just put into my arms because I couldn't coordinate the poles and the legs, the arms and the legs. So I just raced with my legs and, um, and ended up being British novice champion and I won all my races. So from there, I got selected to join the team 
where they teach you how to, you know, the basics of biathlon, the fundamentals, how to get better. And we go up to Scotland and we train there. And then at the end of the season, you'll come and compete against the, the Great Britain's finest and, you know, the ex-Olympians and or the Olympians of that time and the females. And you compete against all them and try and get a spot on the team. And I made it within one year from novice. So pretty, pretty cool. Very cool. So you came into biathlon later than usual, but what other sports were you into growing up? Honestly, none. <laughs> no, I really wasn't. No, I really wasn't. So, I mean, I think that's what makes my story so unique. Like, um, I mean, oh, I, okay, I tell a lie a little bit, actually. I liked a bit of rollerblading. Um, when I was younger, I had a pair of rollerblades. So I did used to rollerblade around the streets and rollerblade into the house, you know, chuck my dinner down and rollerblade back out the house. And that was my mum always laughed, laughed about me about that. But I was never really into any sports and never was interested in watching any sport. You know, my mum and my, my brother and my dad would always watch football, but I was never interested in it, really. So I can't really say I was, you know, a natural-born athlete, in a sense. I mean, you know, when I joined the army, we have to run a mile and a half to get into the army in under, I think it was 14 minutes back in that time. And my brother was like, come on, you need to start running. And I was like, no, I'll be fine. And he was like, no, you need to, tr you need to start running if you want to get in. So I left the house one day with him, ran to the top of the street, put my hands on my knees, and I was like, I can't do this. <gasps> I was like, he was like, you're never going to get in. I was like, I will, but not today. Let's go back and have dinner. And then, you know, they had to do it, honestly. And then a few days later, I tried again. I got like as far as the beachfront, which is about 10 minutes from where I used to live. And I remember stopping again. And he was like, he was going, Amanda, come on, you need to move. You can't just stop every hundred meters. I was like, this is so hard. I thought a mile and a half would be quite quick and easy. <laughs> like, So I have to thank him really probably for the inspiration of getting me in the army and also getting me past these tests. Because, you know, six, I think it was six weeks on or something or 12 weeks on, I went to the selection, selection phase and I passed the test and got in. I was like, whoa, okay, that was harder than I thought it was, but because now i mean what's your daily schedule like i mean what time do you get up how many hours of training do you do oh now it's yeah now it's a i'm a completely changed person <laughs> like now it's all about eating healthy and the athletic lifestyle i mean i mean i get up it varies from day to day on especially in the winter now it's quite sort of i would say you've got a lot more freedom so depending on when your race is you sort of work back from there you get out of bed you do your mobility and or maybe do a little run in the morning wake up the body, have your breakfast, time your lunch, like three and a half hours before your race start, you know, and then you're going and prepping for the race. So you're on the snow like two and a half hours before your race. Um, and it's like that sort of repetitively every weekend from November until the end of March. And whereas the summer is, I would say, where you really build the athlete in the summer, it's, you do like seven different sports. Like I become sort of pretty good in like seven different sports, I would say, because you're running, you're roller skiing, then you've got the classic skiing, you've got the shooting, um you've got the biking and um, the hiking the mountain running i mean there's seven already i mean i could probably go on but we train it all oh, the gym strength as well but we train in all these sports to perfect to become a bathroom in the summer in the winter so during the summer i'm training about five hours a day between four and five hours every day six days a week with a rest day in there somewhere incredible i think we want we all want your fitness i think <laughs> you can get it you just need to start like i never had i wasn't born with this definitely <laughs> It just takes a lot of um, takes a lot of time. Let's say. <laughs> so let's talk about um, biathlon in the UK because 
it's not a big sport. And I think especially if you compare your own um, way of becoming a biofeed, which was at 19, you know, professionally, whereas others start when they're six, eight, 10, 12, right? There's this huge gap. Um, so how do you within your team and just yourself are trying to make the sport more popular and just more known throughout the country? I think now we have a really good system that's starting. We've got a development team now that we've brought up. Um, it is predominantly army athletes as well that have been released, you know, to fulfill their dreams and make the GB team. So we've got them and they're based out in Austria at the moment. So there is a bigger team around at the moment. It's just the people who are racing here. Um, it's just myself and Vinny because it all goes on qualifications. But we have a development team over in Austria um, of, God, I think there's about seven or eight of them over there at the moment. Um, all jun like a lot of juniors as well. So, you know, young 17 to 23 year olds. Um, and then we have uh, some camps back in the UK and they're actually the new BBU now. There's a woman in charge called Elizabeth Winfield and she is like so positive and so proactive and she's, she's really getting things done and she's, you know, reaching out and, you know, trying to really get the bathroom out there. And they're planning camps in the UK for next summer. Um, all over in the south, the north, Scotland also, um, but to get more people in, involved and they're planning on doing school visits and getting, you know, the younger generation involved so we can, you know, really build them up to become the next Olympians. So I think the foundations in that that they're building now is, is really good and really positive for the future. Um, and I think something, yeah, is going to come really good in a few years for Team GB, for sure, in Barathlon. For sure there will be. That's fantastic. One thing that I wonder is, uh, biathlon does require access to ski slobs, uh, gear. Does it represent a high entry cost in the sport? Yeah, definitely. Um, you definitely need some support either from sponsors or, you know, your family if you're young. Um, you know, I'm quite lucky because I'm in the army, so I do get some support from them, which is fantastic. And um, but I think that's the only way I'd be able to do this sport because, you know, they, they pay they pay me my wage and then I put all my wage into the sport to compete. I mean, skis are around 350 a set and you need at least six sets of skis each winter season. And then the roller skis are about two to 300, poles are a couple of hundred, your boots are 300. Yeah, it, it adds up. It's that it is it is quite a bit of money, but you can do it at a, at a you know, a lower level quite cheap as well. You know, there's always secondhand roller skis and secondhand boots and, you know, you can get into the sport. Um, it's just obviously when you, when you start to move up, then you need to start looking at sponsors and getting people to come on the journey with you so you can compete with the rest of the world and be able to have what they have. To, so, you, you know, you're on a level playing field in a sense. But when you're starting, I don't think you need so much money. You just need a bit of determination and, you know, a bit, a bit, of, a bit of will to want to do this sport and you can do it at a fairly cheap cost to begin with. And the ski clubs in the, um, in the UK, I think they will be, you know, they'll have roller skis and boots that people can rent and actually come and try it. And that's what the plan is for next summer as well with the camps. They're going to have a, you know, a, like a sort of pot of equipment that people can come along, try, see if they like it, you know, do it for a few weeks. And then they can go away and be like, mom, dad, like, I really like this. Can I have this my birthday or Christmas or, you know, you know, and then, you know, and try and go from there. So I think that's, that'll be quite positive, definitely. Do you have any uh, special mentor when you were starting out or someone that you really looked up to? Oh, God, yeah. I am. Um, I always looked at Wolfgang Pickler and he was um, the coach for the Swedish team for many years. He went to the Russian team and we'd always say hello and he always knew who I was and I knew who he was. And I always used to think, God, it would be amazing to be trained by this guy. And um, yeah, lo and behold, after my Olympics in 2014, 
and going into the next summer, I didn't know what I was going to do. We'd um, lost the coach for the GDB team and I was a bit of a, at a loss. So I sort of traveled around trying to find myself a new coach. And I was in group holding and I was supposed to be having a meeting with my old coach. And I bumped him, bumped into him in a coffee shop and he was like, hey, how are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm a bit stressed. I'm trying to work out what I'm doing for next summer. And he just said to me, don't worry. And I was like, oh, easy for you to say, you know, and I'll never forget that conversation. But then like literally, I think it was like two weeks later, I got a phone call from the Feder- from a federation saying, uh, Wolfgang Pickler wants to train you. And, um, and I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, but you need to ring him and figure out what you're doing. But, you know, we've come to an agreement. And I was like, wow, okay. So I literally rung him on the phone and I was like so nervous. And he was like, yeah, I can, but you must come to Germany now. And I was like, what? Okay. Um, when? He was like, ah, as soon as possible. And I was in Norway at this point. So I was like, holy moly, I've just moved to Norway, settled in my apartment. So like literally two days later, I packed up my whole car and drove back to Germany to be trained by this legend. And I was, I trained under him for four years until the 2018 Pyeongchang Olympics. And he absolutely transformed me into this absolute machine. I mean, he is the hardest, toughest, most mentally challenging coach I've ever had in my, through my entire career. But he really, yeah, he really changed me as an athlete and turned him into a monster. So I think like looking up to him and then actually having him as my mentor was brilliant. Yeah, such a great part of my bathroom career for sure. You might have heard of him, Sophie. Yeah, of course. Welcome Pichler is a legend. And it, it's interesting to see like how the coaches as well, like so former athletes become coaches, but they also go to train other um, nations as well, right? So like there's this German guy who's, who's um, running the Swedish team now. I think Johannes Lukas, he's called. And then, you know, they're just like changing so much. And I think it's great to see that this is really a community. It's just about like, you know, supporting each other. Yeah, definitely. And I think one thing about like, I learned training with the Swedes where they're like a massive family. Like I was accepted into the, this family and it was their soul. Oh, they're just so together for each other and they just push each other up. And I think that's what makes them so special as a team against all the other teams in the world. They just want to help each other all the time. They're always so help, like, so like excited for each other when they each win. And it's never just a medal for one person. It's a medal for the whole team. And they've really created this beautiful atmosphere. That's just amazing. And I think that's what drives them so, so well. And I saw on your, I think, Twitter, you said you're looking for sponsors right now to go to the Olympics. Um, tell us a bit about that and like your journey um, towards Beijing. Like, where are you at right now? Uh, how much training are you putting into this? Oh, so, yeah. So right now we're in the last year. It's literally just marked the last year. Um, there's a vlog, actually, on my Twitter, Instagram that everyone needs to see. It's so cool. It's my first vlog. And it'll be one of five that I'll be doing with Team GB in the lead up to Beijing. So you get to see, you know, the different parts and the build up to Beijing and behind the scenes and um so I've got I've still got a lot of races between now and the selection for the Olympics you don't actually get told until uh, I mean for me it's usually the week before before I travel out to the Olympics because it all depends on the last races to the last minute against the rest of the nations where you lay um so yeah there's a there's a bit of a time a lot more training um but I am exactly where I want to be right now and I mean COVID took a few months away from me at the beginning this winter um which is a bit of a strain on my training and I really felt at the beginning of the season that I wasn't where where I needed to be. And I'm only just starting to sort of really um, feel fast on the skis and, you know, really belong in the races, let's say, in my mind as well. I think it took a little bit out. Um, So, yeah, I think by next year, I'll be where I want to be. And there's 
there's going to be loads of more videos and stuff on social media. So definitely like follow in me on my journey. And if anyone does out there wants to help or be a sponsor or come on that journey with me, then do get in contact. It'll be great. And was it like um, within the Team GB, you, you know, talk a lot with the other colleagues or maybe ski racers? What's sort of the communication channel? The, we have like a, a group actually on Facebook with a lot of the um, athletes that talk, uh, you know, talk between themselves and giving ideas and things towards the next Olympic Games. Um, a lot of it is via social media now, obviously with COVID, so there's no meeting up. But for me, I, guess, I think I'm sort of quite isolated in that sense because I do the majority of my training in Europe because there's nowhere really for me to train at that level within the UK. Um, but you know a lot of it's social media messages and speaking to other athletes and seeing how they're getting along and but there is a really nice family with team gb and i really like that so when it does come to the olympic games it feels like you've known these people all your life and it's such a nice family and everyone's just wanting to help each other and hang out with each other and you know you can just sit down and have a brew and it's like you've known them for ages it's crazy so you were getting ready for the beijing olympics in 2022 And I think you mentioned sometime uh, in one of your blogs that these would be your final Olympic Games. When have you decided that this is it, or have you even? Um, oh, well, God, that's a, hard, that's a hard question to answer because it's it's kind of, I've been doing this for so long now, and I guess you start to feel, you know, that you're coming to the end and, you you, you know, you need to stop at some point. Of course, you can't continue this forever, and there's there's another life waiting for me beyond biathlon. Um, but you know the army have been the army have been so good to me to let me continue doing this and follow my dream Olympics after Olympics. Uh, you know I, I can't ask them for another four years. Like <laughs> um, as much as I'd love to continue and do the sport as well, it'll be great. I think it's time to you know to give something back to them as well. And I'd love to be on um, the recruitment side of the army and bringing more people into the army and being like you know look what you can do. Like, look at the opportunities the, the army has given me and the drive, and they've completely changed me as a person as well. And I want to give something back as well. And either I would love to be involved in the sports still as well, but I also want to give something back to the recruitment side of the army if I can get into that uh, line of work post next year. But yeah, it'll be it'll be the end. God, don't say that. <laughs> Even though I know it's true, it's just weird when people say it, and I think it'll be, it'll be a massive, like, shock when it... But I'm trying to sort of gradually, you know, bring myself... You know that because you do have to stop at some point. God, I mean, when I first started, and I did after my, I think, lead up to the first Olympic Games, when I decided, okay, I'm going to the Olympic Games, and I got there, and I thought I was going to stop after that, but then I just wanted to go again another four years. I was like, okay, four more years, even more training, more, more like more determination. I'm going to better my results and go another four years. And now four years later, I was like, nah, I love this. I want to go again. We can do it th third time, and hopefully, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's. You've got to stop at some point, don't you? I mean, I'm not getting any younger and people are coming in. Um, and yeah, and there's, there's, there's another, there'll be another life beyond it. So I'm just sort of getting myself towards that path. And I'll think about it probably post-Olympics when I've got a few weeks, you know, and, and then, yeah. Have you noticed a big difference in terms of how much sponsorship do athletes from countries where maybe biathlon is more popular than from the UK? Oh, of course, yeah. Of course, there's going to be a massive difference. I mean, if I was a footballer, I'd be a millionaire, wouldn't I? Um, <laughs> and, you know, the, one of the more common sports in the UK. But being a biathlete, you know, there's not there's not many British people who actually know about this sport. They're, you know, it's getting bigger and there's more and more people getting interested, more and more people watching it. But I don't think people understand the, the whole context and the story behind the sport for the athletes that we've got. So maybe they expect a bit more when you're not when you're not producing medals. They don't look at the, you know, look at the list and go, oh, she came top 30 out of 140. It's like, oh, she came top 30. Uh, you know, she didn't win. 
And it's, you know, when you compare that to the sports, I mean, I think I mentioned this in my vlog as well, like when you compare it to other sports, maybe there's only 10 competitors in, you know, like maybe two-man bobsleigh or, you know, the athletics, you know, the, the 100 metres, you know, nine, I, I don't know exactly. I'm not a big sports fan, obviously, as you can tell. Um, <laughs> I love biathlon, but I know there's not so many competitors in a lot of different sports. And with us, we're racing against 100 female athletes in every race, 80 to 140. So in comparison, you've got to be like on top form and hit all of them targets to to get a feel to be at the top. And when you, you know, when I do make it, it will be amazing because you're beating, you're not just beating, you know, six or 10 people, you're beating 130 athletes from all over the world. So I think it's such a big honor in Barthelon when you do win something, like uh, one of the races. Yeah, it varies definitely. And I think it goes hand in hand with the sport as well. And the support in the different nations, for example, that's more popular in Norway, France, Germany. You know, when we go to these competitions, they've got these big, massive wax trucks. They've got like wax teams of 12 waxes and each athlete's got their own wax man with their same weight to test their skis. They have grinding machines and they've got sponsors like left, right and center. And, you know, you go there and you're like, oh my God, we're so small. But you've got to, you've got to, you've got to chuck that away and be like, you know, actually, I can compete. I can compete with these. And, you know, on the race day, when you do beat these bigger nations, it just makes you more proud because you're like, I'm doing this with six skis and one man band who's doing the, the coaching, the zeroing, the waxing, the running around, the feeding on the track, the adjustments, you know. Uh, so it's just it just makes it a bit more special, being from Great Britain, for sure. And there were some more smaller nations like me as well. Yeah, it's always great when you watch and you see like those individual athletes who always be compete for the smaller nations, like um, South Korea the other time when you were racing as well, and NGP, and you're just as a spectator, so thrilled about them being part of it. So I think you know, everyone is as happy as you are competing and just watching you as well. No, it's true, yeah. I mean, there was a, an Australian guy, um, uh, Campbell Wright, and he's he's a junior still, and there was a competition a few weeks ago in Arbor, and he came fifth, and it was like, he got flowers, and it was just like so amazing to just see a small nation up there with the rest, and I'm like, God, you beast, like, go on. And you get excited for them as well, because it's somewhere it's someone different who doesn't have the support, you know, and this guy had like, I think four skis or something to his name, and um, I think at the, after that, I think um, there was a sponsor that wanted to give him a few few more skis. They wanted to give him three skis. And he was like, oh, I don't need that many. Like, you know, trying to give them away. And it's just, you know, it's a total different spectrum from someone at the top who maybe have like 40 skis to test on a race gear compared to the small nation who's got like between four and six. And they're, yeah, they're just a lot more humble as well. It's it's so nice to see. You know, like they're really, yeah, it's, it's, really, it's a really nice feeling. Yeah, you mentioned a very interesting point because obviously it's it's sometimes hard to juggle, you know, this professional career as, a, as an athlete, right, with the wages and the sponsoring. So a lot of what athletes do is like join the army or work as a police force. Do you know anyone else who does something different than that? Or like what are the tangible ways of being an athlete and like sustain yourself? I think a lot of um, people are in the forces or the border controls, especially like um, like Italy and um French and some of the other nations and I know um like the Canadians like one of the Canadians she works in a coffee shop all summer just to get enough money to compete in the winter and I find that so like inspiring like like hats off to people who can you know train and work all day and then make the winter season and create results I think it's fantastic um, but there's a lot of and then um there's some people who just be able to do full time and they're, they're helped by their sponsors or by their parents so I think there's a little variety of, out there of what people are doing in order to you know, keep maintaining um, their sport and career. So one question, obviously, we as Germans and Sp Spaniards want to ask you is about Brexit and to what extent has Brexit changed your life as a biathlete? At the moment, it hasn't done so much. 
Um, and I know I need to look into next summer about how many days I can stay in Europe for and when that will come into effect. I mean, I've had a, a brief look at it at the moment and maybe getting a, a you know, a temporary, um, uh, like a, uh, what do you call it, a temporary visa in a sense through the time where I'll stay in Germany in training. Um, but I am not worrying it so much yet because it hasn't affected me so much because I'm kind of in this bubble of the IBU at the moment, just racing, training. So I'll think about it more um, towards the end of March when I go back for my downtime and see my family and stuff and we'll plan then. But um, yeah, I don't really see any big effects towards me just yet. I mean, apart from maybe getting have to get some visas and stuff next year to compete in certain countries. And but they're just simple little things, simple tasks we can, no problem. I'm not so worried. <laughs> now we're asking you for a pitch to the next uh, and future Amanda Lightfoots out there. Why should they um, think about becoming a biathlete and what would you tell them? Oh, God. So, <laughs> to the next Amanda Lightfoot. <laughs> I think if you really want to make it and you want to make the World Championships and the Olympic Games, then you, you need to commit yourself. You need to commit yourself to biathlon and really believe in yourself because it doesn't matter what the other nations have and how much support the other nations have and how many you know different things. You've got to cut all that away and just focus on yourself where you want to be and I think if you really you really believe it then you can get there as cliche as it sounds I was going to say you can achieve it but it's a bit cliche but you know if you do believe it and you do believe in yourself you can you can make you can make your dreams come true and I'm living proof so to the next man life foot go for it we're so happy you could join us today in woman in sport I Tess Mostelis and my co-host Sophie Timmerman hope to continue to bring you exciting new topics if you want to join us on this journey, make sure to follow us. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Amazon Music. And if you like the show and want to support us, you can become our Patreon on patreon.com slash Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>